Thank you, Travis. I invite you to turn down to our passage found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We read, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty Father, I would pray that you would send your spirit upon us now that you would illumine the minds of our hearts to understand and to receive this good news in this passage concerning the birth of our Savior. Father, I pray that as we receive this Savior, I pray that as we trust in this Savior and hope in our Savior, that you will fill our hearts with joy and peace regardless of our circumstances because this is our Savior and this is our Lord. And we would pray these things in his precious name. Amen. You know, history is punctuated at points with such tantalizing ironies. In American history, consider, for example, the case of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Both men helped write the Declaration of Independence. Both men signed the Declaration on July 4, 1776. And both men died on the same day, ironically, on the day of the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration on July 4th, 1826. What a remarkable irony. History is punctuated by these kinds of things. But the greatest irony in history concerns the circumstances surrounding the birth of our Savior. Jesus was born when Caesar Augustus enacted a decree affecting the entire world. The title Augustus means holy. It's a title at this time reserved only for deity, but interestingly conferred on him by the Roman Senate. And the reason is because as emperor, Augustus at this point has brought a measure of peace to the entire known world, the great Pax Romana, and thus Augustus is hailed as the savior of the world. And his far-reaching decree has turned 
the whole world upside down now as millions of people travel back to their ancestral homes to register. Ironically, in all of this unhappiness, the hidden hand of God is working all for good. Luke wants us to see the delicious irony in these circumstances. This decree of the mighty Augustus, the Savior of the world, has directed Joseph and Mary now to Bethlehem. And that is only because God decreed 700 years earlier the true Savior of this world would be born there. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, Micah had prophesied. The Roman Senate proclaimed Caesar divine, but the babe in Bethlehem was truly the Son of God, just as the angel Gabriel proclaimed it to Mary. Mary's son is truly God incarnate, the God of glory clothed in lowly humanity. But how shocking that a person possessing such dignity is wrapped not in royal purple and laid on a golden throne, but instead is wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a feeding trough for his crib. What humiliation, what irony. Joseph and Mary may have felt like two insignificant little pawns caught up in the titanic upheaval of Augustus's decree, but the hand of Almighty God was at work in all of this humiliation, all of this heartache to accomplish what he decreed. The long-expected Savior of the world who brings peace between God and man and will reign forever was born. And those who receive this Savior are his subjects who are called to imitate his humility. Now, what are the features of the Christmas story that we see here? First, incarnation. Here's the really staggering truth that confronts us at Christmas. Mary's son, is the second person of the Godhead who became incarnate in her womb. In that truth, we have two mysteries for the price of one. The union of the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as one God within the Godhead and the union of Godhead and manhood as one person within the womb of Mary. The Word became flesh, John declares in his Gospel. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. Now, what is Luke insisting that we see here? The baby born in Bethlehem was man. Nine months before this birth in Bethlehem, back in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel announced to the Virgin Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The word conceive is the usual word used for human conception in the Bible. Jesus was not implanted in Mary's womb. He was conceived. He was 
formed of her flesh by the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth, Mary's relative, confirmed this later, shortly after this announcement. By the angel, Mary goes to Elizabeth and filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth hails her, saying, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Elizabeth also calls Mary the mother of my Lord. Jesus has cons was conceived by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on Mary's body. And so as his mother, Mary contributed everything a human mother contributes to the conception of her son. Mary is Jesus' biological mother in every sense of the word except that she is a virgin. What an irony. And the baby born in Bethlehem was God made man. Luke wants us to see this as well. At the announcement of her conception by the angel in chapter 1, Mary asks, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answers in such a way that hints at her son's deity. The angel says the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Just as we read in Exodus 40 that the glory cloud overshadowed and filled the tabernacle with the presence of God. So the presence of God tabernacled within Mary's womb in this person of this wonderful son. He would be called holy for he was separated from sin and set apart from God's purposes. He would also be called the son of God. I mean, when this son is grown, we see in Luke's gospel how he speaks to men with the authority of God. He terrifies the demons with the power of God. He controls the creation and he calms the storm with a mere word. Jesus is the glorious Son of God come in frail humanity. Again, how ironic. Now we reach for analogies to grasp the wonder of this incarnation. Some have compared it to a symphony with all its complexity and all its magnificence reduced to a simple folk tune. The baby born of Mary was still the symphony. He's the God, the Son, from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, but he is also now a folk tune. He is man from the essence of his mother born in time. And why is it that Luke goes on at length about the truth of the incarnation? It's because he wants us to see that this is really, really true. This is a fact of history. You know, Christmas is so highly sentimentalized in America. People see the charming crush scenes and they hear these words and, and often they think of them only as a kind of charming legend, you know, kind of a lovely little moral fable. Oh, such a charming little scene, people say, a, a sentimental scene to evoke in us these warm feelings of peace and hope and joy. And yes, when we receive this truth of the incarnation, we have peace and hope and joy. But, but Luke wants us to see that this isn't a charming little legend. This is the gospel truth. This really happened. 
And notice how he grounds the birth of Jesus in the facts of recorded history. This really happened, he says. It was at the time that Caesar Augustus decreed his great census. And go back to the beginning of Luke's gospel. And what does he say there? He says, what I'm giving you in this gospel is an eyewitness account. He doesn't say once upon a time. He doesn't say long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Instead, he says, this our incarnation I'm telling you about really happened. We don't need sentimental little legends, but we do need this truth of the incarnation. Now think how this encouraged Joseph and Mary. Uh, This couple is suffering. This couple is concerned about their circumstances. I mean, their world has been unexpectedly turned upside down by powers beyond their control. Ah, but you see, Mary's son is quite literally God with us. Mary's son is God's promise to her and to Joseph that God has not left those who receive this son simply to fend for themselves in this troubled world. And that realization gave them a supernatural peace in their difficulties. And it does for us too. Jesus is God with us. And that's why when he was grown, he promised Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Oh, how confident a person is when he has received this son and submitted all of his troubles to him. How safely is the soul preserved who has surrendered all his concerns and questions to this Savior. Shortly before he left the world, Jesus promised his troubled disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In the Christmas story we see incarnation. We see that God is with us. And second, we see humiliation. You know, when we grasp the dignity of Mary's child, the circumstances of his birth shock us. I mean, we might have expected that The exalted son would enter this world surrounded by his father's angels or maybe dwell in a palace with power and authority and glory. But instead, God's son was born as the poorest of mankind and the lowliest of the lowly. I mean, three times in this chapter, there's a reference here to Jesus' manger to underscore the irony here. I mean, what a shocking humiliation for one possessing such a dignity. But you see, ironically, it's in this humiliation that we see the true reason for Jesus' incarnation. We see the mission the Father had given to His Son. The true true wonder of the Christmas story is not merely that God the Son became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That is a great mystery indeed, but it's not the greatest mystery. The greatest mystery is that the Son of God was born in our flesh in order to die on a cross to make us rich with God in glory. 
The real wonder of the incarnation is not that bare statement in John's gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Instead, the real wonder of the incarnation is the bigger statement of Paul's, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The significance of the manger is that it's the first step this son must take in his journey to the cross to die for our sins. Jesus suffered humiliation to receive what we deserve. Jesus suffered all of this humiliation to receive what we deserve. Why did God's Son come in such humiliation and weakness? Why did He come as a conquering king? Why didn't He ride into history on a royal stallion? Why didn't He come with a scepter and destroy all the evil? You see, I say that because sometimes people complain. They say things like this. They say, if there really is a God, why doesn't He just stop all the evil? If Jesus really is God come in human flesh, why didn't he get rid of all the evil? But surely the answer is this, if Jesus had come the first time to destroy all the sources of evil, you and I wouldn't have even been left. We would have been destroyed with all the other evil. You see, sometimes people think the problem of evil involves things like the threat of nuclear annihilation or the growth of technology or the threat of artificial intelligence and on it goes. But you see, the real problem, the deeper issue is the evil in the heart of man that's responsible for all the evil. Martin Luther diagnosed the problem perfectly when he said the human heart is incurvatus in se, Latin for turned in on itself. Human nature is radically self-centered. It is radically self-serving. It is radically self-absorbed. And because we threw off God's lordship, because we turned our backs on him and went our own way, our self-centeredness is capable of great evil. And that's why the Son of God stooped from glory to heaven to such humiliation in this world. He had to be rejected, not accepted. He had to be killed and not crowned. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear the judgment of God that we deserve for our evil. He came as our substitute to receive from his Father the punishment our evil deserves. Other religions say you can find salvation if you try hard enough. But Christianity alone says the evil in your heart is too great for that. Christianity says your situation is hopeless. But for the grace of God. And that's why Jesus came, to save sinners who cannot save themselves. Jesus did not come saying, well, let me show you how you can save yourself. You know, let me show you how you can be good and upstanding and respectable and successful and religious so that you can save yourself. No, instead, Jesus says, your situation is so hopeless, I had to come in human flesh to save the likes of you. I had to come and suffer the humiliation of dying under my Father's wrath on the cross for you. 
the significance of this humiliating manger. The baby that was born and laid in a wooden manger when he was grown would be laid on a rough wooden cross. He died rejected by the world. He died even rejected by his father. He got what we deserve so that we might get what he deserves. The riches of God's love and acceptance and glory forever. Jesus suffered humiliation to give us what he deserves. My friends, behold in this passage the grace and the condescension of our Savior. I mean, this is love that passes understanding. I mean, this is love that is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us forget that through his humiliation, Jesus has purchased a title to glory for us. The title to enjoy fellowship with God in the glory he enjoyed before he stooped to humiliate himself for us in this world. Through his life of suffering as well as his death, he has purchased eternal redemption through us. All through his life, he made himself poor for our sakes. From the hour of his birth to the hour of his death, so that through his poverty, we are made rich with God in glory forever. The features of the Christmas story here involve incarnation, humiliation, and then finally imitation. If we've embraced this Son as our Savior, then God has opened up for us a new chapter in our lives. And the rest of the New Testament shows that God has as his goal for us our sanctification. He has as our goal for us to be holy and consecrated to God as our Savior was. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans. Human beings by creation were made in the image and likeness of God. In the beginning, we were called to be reflectors of his divine glory. But brothers and sisters, we sinned. We went our own way. We fell short of the glory of God. The good news of Christmas, however, is God hasn't deserted us to our sin and misery. Instead, he sent his son, God incarnate, to suffer the humiliation of the cross and then being raised from the dead to new life. And when we heed the call of Christ to come to him for mercy, to come to him for forgiveness as our Savior, when we receive him as our sin bearer, we enter into Christ's new resurrection life. And the Spirit at that point begins this wonderful work of conforming us to the image of his likeness, one degree of glory to another. We are thus called to imitate Christ's humility. And what are two aspects of Christ's humility that we are to imitate that we see in this Christmas story? And the first is this. The sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ. Now I fear that some of us may greet those words as a downer. 
but bear with me. Consider the situation here. Consider Mary's situation here. The angel told Mary that the one born of her would be the Son of God. He would inherit the throne of his father David and reign forever. Oh, what dignity Mary's son possessed. And wonderfully, she was his mother, the most favored of all women. And quite truthfully, she proclaimed, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You know, I wonder if perhaps the favored status both of Mary's son and of herself meant royalty, wealth, riches, and ease to her. You know, happy days are here. We're moving up. I don't know, but you see, any illusions of grandeur she may have had were quickly dispelled by the sufferings God permitted her. I mean, she was an unwed mother in a culture that did not smile kindly on unwed mothers. And then there was this arduous journey of some 80 miles to Bethlehem when she was at full term. I mean, we wonder, did she ride on a beast of burden? Or did she walk with this kind of rolling, labored gait? Regardless, she suffered. And on the journey, was she comforted by dreams of a warm bed in Bethlehem? Perhaps. But it was not to be because no one would have sympathy there for a young mother in labor. So she had to bear her son in a stable. What do we see in the Christmas story? <clears throat> we see that God has ordained trials. He has ordained difficulties for the purpose of our growth and holiness. You know, this is hard for us to accept in the healthy-minded West, isn't it? But this is part of the Christmas story. The 17th century divine, John Flavel, wrote these words. These afflictions have the same use and end to our souls that frosty weather hath upon those clothes that are laid in bleaching. They alter the hue and make them white. God overrules our suffering for our good. He uses it to conform us to the image of his son. He uses it ironically to increase our faith and hope and joy. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, Paul wrote. The sufferings God permits for his people are not punitive because God punished Jesus for us. And they are not pointless either because you see God is putting them to good use. He is using them to make us more like Jesus. And then the second matter of imitation we see here is the selflessness of Christ. You see, if we belong to Christ, then we must have his mind and spirit in us. In love, we must selflessly put others' needs above our own, just as Christ did for us. I mean, here's the irony of Christmas. The way up is the way down. 
The way to get the love you need is selflessly love without worrying a whole lot about how much love you're getting in return. You see, that's the pattern of the Christmas story. How ironic. Who could have imagined? Let us pray. Almighty Father, the scene here in these verses is so highly sentimentalized in America. But Father, open our eyes to see the irony and the wonder here. Your Son became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He suffered humiliation to gather us to you, to give us the wealth and the riches and glory that he deserves. Receiving him <clears throat> brings us into this wonderful union whereby we have entered into his new resurrection life. You have called us to imitate our Savior. Father, I pray that as we bear the sufferings of Christ, you would cause us to remember them. We, we, we do not bear them alone. Jesus promised, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remind us in our difficulties that they're not punitive because Jesus was punished under your wrath for us. And they're not purposeless either. You are using them for a good end. You are using them to conform us to the likeness of your Son. And as you do so, you increase our faith and hope and joy in you. And Father, help us imitate our Savior in his selflessness. This is hard for us. This goes right to the root of our problem because we are so selfish. But Father, by your Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, work this selfless Spirit in us as well. Help us count others' needs as more important than ourselves. Help us in this time of darkness in our world to reflect now the light of Jesus because you are conforming us to his likeness. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.